You're listening to Two Therapists in Therapy, a podcast about self-acceptance, self-love, and self-growth. I'm your host, Sarah Brill, a licensed clinical social worker, EMDR trauma therapist, and writer. And I'm your other host, Becca Moravec, licensed professional counselor, licensed marriage and family therapist, and Enneagram enthusiast. I'm a two, Sarah is a four. Hi, thanks for tuning in to episode six of Two Therapists in Therapy. You are in for a treat as we interview Chichi Agoram about her journey to self-acceptance. The sound in today's episode is a little echoey, but the content is full of wisdom from this incredible woman. So sit back, listen, and enjoy. Hi, Becca. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Chi-Chi. Hi, Becca and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. I'm excited about this. Excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. We're so Thank excited you. to have you. Thank you for spending your Saturday morning, afternoon with us. Should we paint a picture for our listeners of where we are and who we're talking to? Yeah, sure. Okay. We're sitting in my basement. Yes. Not my garage. <laughs> I thought it was a garage. And we're talking to the um, magnificent Chichi. How do you say your last name? Agoram. Agoram. Chichi Agoram. Mm-hmm. And I use the word magnificent very deliberately. Um, Chichi is just a vision of a human being in every possible way. She's an artist, she's a therapist, she's an Enneagram expert. She is just a woman of so many, so many talents. So we're so lucky to have her here this morning. Thanks, Sarah. That was yeah. really kind. Yeah. Yeah. Chichi is a black therapist. That's not how you wanted me to say that. A black woman who practices therapy. <laughs> yes. A yeah. black woman who practices therapy. And an Enneagram practitioner and teacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And both Becca and I had the absolute honor of learning all about the Enneagram from Chi-Chi about, how long ago was that? Like two months ago? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so inspiring that both Becca and I were like, oh my gosh, we have to go to a training because Chi-Chi just did such an incredible job of explaining the Enneagram in such an authentic and grounded way. So thank you. And I'm really excited for you both. To get to go to the training. I actually have a little bit of FOMO. I want to start again. <laughs> I know. We, we live in like two and a half weeks. Or yeah. Three weeks. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh, so fun. That actually just made me think. I, I um, remembered that a few of our listeners have kind of asked um, for a little bit more explanation of the Enneagram. So I wondered if you could just give like a super quick sort of explanation of what the Enneagram is and um, sort of what your practice um, centers around involving the Enneagram, because I know you offer a lot of different um, avenues for people to explore it. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> I put you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. I, I feel like I'm still working on a really good definition that I use for explaining what the Enneagram is without going into a long thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a human typology system 
that's been around since the 13th century, um, and it maps out core motivations um, and helps us see kind of our shadow sides, the mm-hmm. things that motivate our behaviors and our actions, um, helps you kind of take ownership of that and offers a map to return to your essential self. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I like to say that like the, I would say that the core difference between the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs, which most people know about, is that if the Myers-Briggs, for example, focuses, <clears throat> focuses on behavior, um, external traits, um, but all three of us could behave in very similar ways, but motivated by very different things. Mm-hmm. And the Enneagram explores core motivation um, and shows us the, the ways that those things that we are deeply afraid of are actually what motivate us to act in certain ways and gives, I love that it offers, um, it offers the opportunity to grow in compassion for myself, for mm-hmm. other people, um, to feel less alone, to understand how connected we all are, um, as opposed to being like, I just don't get, you know, people like this mm-hmm. over here. But um, with the Enneagram, I think I've been able to, I've, I've watched myself grow in the ability to say, our fears might be different, but there's so much similarity here and there's more sympathy and empathy for um, our c- common humanity. Mm-hmm. I know you just said you had it. You were still working on a definition, and I know that's still your working definition, but that's a beautiful definition. <laughs> so now it's recorded, so Thank now you. we can write it down. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's one of the things that we, as you will learn in the if you continue with the trainings, it's one of the things that we have to like figure out for ourselves. Like we're not given a here's a definition you should use. Uh-huh. It's like how do you what has this meant for you? Yeah. How do you talk about it with other people? So I'm still kind of like figuring that out but thank you that's beautiful yeah and just so our listeners kind of know where to find you um can you talk about your instagram and also again sort of how you integrate the enneagram into Mm -hmm. your practice as a therapist um so for instagram you could find me at thin space co um and that's also my website so thinspaceco.com but with my practice i don't i'm not an enneagram therapist so i kind of just weave it into um, different sessions with different clients as it's needed or helpful. Um, most people, I mean, the Enneagram is having its moment right now. So most people have heard about it. So it's not never, it's never really a, well, that's not true. Maybe like 10% of the time someone's like, Oh, I've never heard of that. But most people are like, Oh yeah, I've heard about that. I am curious about it. And so I will do, I was trained in the narrative tradition, which is, um, the training that we've been referencing. Um, and we do narrative interviews as opposed to an online like multiple choice type question um or a test and so I'll do that with clients and it just offers a common language around um motivations fears patterns um it's it's nice to have a common language where it's like you know a client is talking about something and and I'm thinking about that through the lens of their type and uh we could stay on the surface talking about the actual thing. But then I'm like, oh, how does this core fear um, affect this this avoidance that you are talking about right now? You know, um, so that's been really fun. It's also, I mean, it's been helpful for clients too, just as something that they can explore on their own and um, have like tangible strategies for being aware of patterns and um, things to do to continue to grow. And I wonder how it feeds in because we are talking about this. I wonder how it feeds into our topic of self-acceptance because I 
I mean, I know it does. (laughs) Yeah. And so I wonder, I thought, I think that would be interesting to hear, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we talk about your story of, um, part of your, part of your self-acceptance, where that weaves in, if Mm -hmm. you feel so inclined. Yeah. 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 And maybe we should just kind of segue right into that. Um, yeah. So aside from all of these incredible, um, talents that Tucci has. She's here today to kind of share um, her journey to self-acceptance. And as we've discussed in our previous episodes, this is a huge topic. There are so many different chapters. So um, of course, you know, I'm sure there are many threads of self-acceptance in your story, but today we're going to kind of just focus on um, one sort of piece of it. So um yeah, so thank you so much for being here today. And thank do you, you feel like me. Yeah, do you feel like we can move in that direction? Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So I'm gonna ask me, Becca, I'm gonna say my name a few times because I've gotten a lot of feedback, mostly from like I don't know, from people who know me that we sound alike. Hmm. Which is really? weird because I don't think we do. Do you think we sound alike? I don't. <laughs> my, my voice is deeper, right? Yeah. And you both have a different, like, cadence uh-huh. to the way you talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, they're wrong. So, this is Sarah. <laughs> this is Becca. This so, is <laughs> so, Becca, I'm asking. I'm Becca, and I'm asking Tutti, what is your working definition? So, kind of like we just put you on the spot about the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. What, how do you think about self-acceptance? What is that? Um, well... There are lots of layers to that answer, I would say, but I think maybe like an overarching working definition for me is allowing myself to be fully human, Mm -hmm. Um, where I think rather than reserving my love, affection, support for this future idealized version of myself, offering that to who I am in this present moment and allowing my humanity to show through. And I say that because I feel like I have, um, it is very easy for me to idealize my, you know, I have an ideal self and there is the belief or the lie really that it's the ideal self that's worthy of love and acceptance and belonging. And that's not true. And so for me, my working definition of self-acceptance is both being able to be to allow the present version of me to be what she is um, and to allow her to be human as opposed to trying to polish the image of the idealized self, thinking that that image is what gets me acceptance and love. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. Snap. That was really... Yeah, wow. I'm, I'm sitting here kind of speechless. That was really... Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. You. you have such a way with words, Titi. Thanks. Yeah. I used to read the dictionary for fun as a kid. No so. way. Are you serious? Did you really? It's probably the nerdiest oh. thing you will learn about me. Well, that and I, I was the vice president of the chess club, so. Oh, right. yeah. that's pretty oh. awesome. A little nerd. Oh, man, I love wow. that so much. Did you, like, keep, a, a, like, a log of your favorite words, or did you just kind of, like, catalog them in your brain? Both. Both? Mm-hmm. Do you still have it? No. I wish I did, uh-huh. but uh, no. But I still... Still till like, adulthood. <laughs> I have a, you know, I have a little, like, note uh, file. Do you have a favorite word? It changes. What's your favorite word right now? Hmm, that's a good question. Hmm. 
Mm. Maybe it'll come to you later, unless it's coming to you right now. Well, there's one I'm thinking about, but I don't know if I want to elevate it to the, <laughs> to the position of favorite a word. Favorite? Um, Could it be like top ten? It's yeah, a good top ten. I like the word veracity. Mm. Um, yeah, it means um, honesty or truthfulness about who you are. Ooh, that's pertinent. To what we're yes. talking about mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, Chichi, what do you feel like was the moment in your life where you first learned that a part of you was not okay, or that society didn't accept mm-hmm. a part of you? With a very distinct memory, um, I think I was in, so I grew up in Nigeria, in Lagos, Nigeria, so I always, this like takes me a minute every time to do the conversion from our uh, education system to what that would be here. I think it was fifth grade or sixth grade, uh, and I don't have any recollection before then of thinking about my body or my appearance. Uh, I was just a little kid. I was very opinionated about other things, but didn't really care about how I looked because I was in fifth grade. And I remember that somebody in my class had, I don't know what they said to me. I don't even remember who said what. That wasn't the part of it that felt hurtful. They said something that made me sad. So I went out of the classroom and I was sitting outside of the door by myself um, crying. And this girl who, we weren't really friends. She was just a girl in my class. But she came out, she walked out the classroom door and sat next to me on the floor and put her arms around me and said, um, stop crying. Uh, she said some, some other things like try and cheer me up. And I thought, Oh, that's nice. And then she said, okay, are you, are you done crying? You're going to smile now and show me those big teeth. Mm. And I remember thinking, what? (laughs) My teeth are big. Mm. Um, and then she said something else about, I have a, I have a, well, this is a podcast. I have a little gap in between my two front teeth and she said something about that too and it was just like it was very it was a small statement but it was my first huh other people think about my appearance and have thoughts about that good or bad and I just remember feeling bad about my smile and no kidding from that point from fifth grade until I think I was in grad school I covered my mouth mm. every time I laughed or like smiled. Mm. <laughs> it was like an uh, just immediate hand over mouth. Thing. Wow. Um, and it was like a process. Like it, I recognized it in grad school. I mean, I recognized it before then too, but I had to like actually like mm-hmm. stop myself. Like, yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I remember there's, there's another uh, experience, but on the, the same thread, I think I was in college maybe at this point. Uh, yes. It was the end of college. I was at someone's wedding, and a woman came up to me and said, you have such a beautiful smile. And my first thought was, oh, she's being mean. Mm. Like, she's saying that because what she actually means is, oh, you have such big teeth and uh, a gap, and she's doing the thing, you know. And I had to, like, catch myself and stop and be like, maybe she really just means that you have a beautiful smile. Mm -hmm. But that story stayed with me. But that was the first time that – and it might seem really little, but truly that was the first time there was the introduction of uh, the, the feeling of shame yeah. about some part of me. Mm-hmm. You were being evaluated. Yes. Yeah. Which never crossed my mind up until that moment that anything about me was being evaluated by somebody else um, as far as appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, at home, it was more about academics and, you know, 
excelling and that kind of thing and not about appearance. So there is that. And then um, I have another distinct memory from when I was older. I was in uh, 10th or 11th grade at this point. And I went to boarding school in Nigeria, which is a fascinating experience in and of itself. Um, but essentially, uh, the higher you get in the, uh, so it's, it's all from 7th through 12th grade, everybody stays together. It was an all-girls school. And you could either stay at school or come every day to boarding school or a day student. And essentially, the seniors and everyone, like 10th to 12th, was like in charge of, they could do whatever they wanted with you. So my friends and I were walking uh, across the campus and we were called by um, a group of seniors who were bored and wanted entertainment. And they asked us to line up, like like put ourselves in order from most beautiful to the ugliest. There are probably about five of us and um, we refused to do it. So we just stood there and uh, they could punish you. <laughs> this sounds really crazy because it's not how school is here, but they could punish you for not doing whatever they want you to do. Um, so they did because we wouldn't put ourselves in order. I think we had to like squat and mm. do weird things for maybe 20 minutes and we still wouldn't do it. So one of them was like, fine, I'll do it myself and arranged us and put us, put me at the end of the line as the ugliest. And I am far more vulnerable with my emotions now, but I was like, I never showed any emotion at mm. school. So I didn't, you know, we had the experience. They laughed, told us to go. Uh, my friends and I never talked about it. I didn't bring it up. We've never talked about it since then. But I went home and wept. And that stayed with me. Um, so it was like, and there were other things in between. Those are the two most, um, they're the two memories that are the most, uh, what's the word I'm trying to find? Poignant. Pavel. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but there were many things in between that that felt like, oh, this is not, there is something wrong with me uh-huh. that I have no control over. Uh-huh. So how did that start to impact you on an internal level? I, um, so like I said, with the, the smile thing, I would uh-huh. put my hands up. Uh-huh. Um, I just, the other piece of that was... Um, I, my skin was darker than my friends, mm. and the lighter skinned you are, the more attractive you are that exists across the world. And so there was definitely more of a, I, I, I think I just kind of accepted it. It was like an internalizing of, oh, okay, I'm not objectively attractive. Um, so I leaned more towards academics, towards reading, towards writing. I spent a lot of time. I mean, I am an introvert, so not all of this was because of that, but I spent a lot of time writing. Like I wrote my first novel when I was 13, and mm. I created these characters that were so wildly different from me um, and experienced their bodies differently than I did because in my reality, it was just like um, I wasn't objectively attractive. Mm-hmm. I also wasn't uh, stereotypically feminine, so I grew up in a house full of women, and I, as a kid, as a kid, would get into trouble because I'd come home from school and want to watch uh, WWE wrestling <laughs> or soccer, and I'd get really into it. And my mom was like, "I am not raising a little boy." And I, you know, like I didn't like the color pink. My favorite color was blue and purple, um, and so. I, there was just like a lot of like, oh, this is, I, can, I got messages of this is just wrong. Your way of existing and your body and the way you look doesn't fit what it should be. Um, so I think that's how I internalized it at that point. But once I hit puberty, 
and my body started to change in other ways. I went from being invisible and uh, not attractive to like the complete opposite end of the spectrum where my body was now a commodity. So I, um, you know, walking home from, from the, from school, from the bus stop one day, I was like followed in a car by this older man who I know how old he is. Cause he told me that he was 72, but he was like propositioning me to be his like mm. side piece basically. Wow. Um, and so there's lots of that, you know, like you go from being invisible and not attractive to mm-hmm. like being like on the receiving end of inappropriate mm-hmm. comments yeah. and being groped and things like that. Pretty and confusing. so it was a very, yeah, it was a very mm-hmm. confusing because there also wasn't any conversation. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, this is true of Nigerian culture and my family culture. Mm-hmm. There wasn't conversation about this at home. Mm-hmm. The conversation was like, um, you don't have sex. You cover up. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family is like pretty conservative Christian. So you cover up because you're a woman and mm-hmm. your body does, can do damage to mm-hmm. men. So my mom used to say, um, which we've talked about this since then, and she recognizes how uh, harmful this is, but she used to say when I was a kid, if you rub feces on yourself and walk down the street, you can't complain when the flies follow you. Mm-hmm. Referring to like the way you dress and ha- that having a direct correlation to what how men treat, yeah, how men treat you and treat your body. Mm-hmm. So it was like this, I'm not attractive. Um, boys my age aren't interested in me, but these older men are making all these like weird comments. Now I have some boobs um, now I have hips. Now I have something, um, that other people are talking about and I'm still being evaluated. Mm-hmm. So it's like, now I'm quote unquote pretty or attractive because, uh, I fit into this external mold, mm-hmm. um, or, um, expectation. So it was a very confusing process. And I spent a lot of time as a kid in front of my mirror, um, uh, just analyzing everything about my body. I had a long list of, I don't like this and I don't like this and I don't like this and I wish it was so different. I would stand in front of the mirror and like move my eyes around and mm-hmm. think about how much prettier I would be if my eyes were, because one time somebody said, your eyes, your eyes are overweight. No, it's really funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Like big eyes. Over what, uh, over what weight? <laughs> right. Like wow. Uh-huh. Uh, but just like little things uh-huh. like that, that, um, in the moment, I always just laughed about those things, and I didn't realize how much they affected me until I would catch myself, mm-hmm. you know, as a teenager, a friend in the mirror, like, like squishing my eyes together to see, oh, would I actually be prettier if my eyes were wow. smaller, things like that. So did anyone, I know you said your family didn't really talk a lot about these things, but did anyone know in your life that you were um, going through this struggle or kind of internalizing these messages in the way that you were? Or was it totally private? It was totally private. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like your writing was an outlet for you. <laughs> to some degree. I also read a lot of those really, really shitty, um, like, Harlequin romance novels. Uh-huh. So a lot, some of the things I wrote were, like, in that vein. Uh-huh. So I don't know that it was necessarily, like, a therapeutic outlet. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I read and read and wrote a lot. Um, so much so that that's what I got into trouble for as a kid. Mm-hmm. My mom was like, please go hang out with people. Stop reading. You just mm-hmm. read a 500-page novel in two days. Stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is so interesting because, um, like, talking about appearance and beauty as, like, our currency, and you decided, or you didn't decide, 
well, yeah, you kind of decided, well, that's not my currency, so academics would be? That's not my currency. Be well, yeah, I don't have the... I would like it, but I've been told that I don't have it. Yeah. So I'm going to focus on the area where I think mm -hmm. I can excel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because even, like, I feel compelled, you know, and this is my probably internalized sexism, I, like, feel compelled to, like, sit here and be like... But, this is like Chi Chi's smile is like so beautiful. And, it like, totally obvious, is. Right? Yes. But even that, like, <laughs> and even that, but even that pull from me is, um, I think that's a really interesting focus because even compliments mm -hmm. on appearance are still yes. evaluations. Yes. And that's why, yeah, it's a really funky subject to even. Yes. Yeah. It's still, I was thinking about that recently actually because I'm in such a different, and, and that's, that's what we're talking about today, but to skip ahead just a little bit I'm in such a different space with my body and like my appearance and being able to love what is and really actually see it as beautiful and still I have like I was I was having this conversation with a good friend a few weeks ago because um I hadn't had a mirror I've been living in my current place for almost a year now and I didn't have a mirror for I don't know the first seven months or something because I wanted a specific one and was waiting to get it. And so I only had my little tiny bathroom vanity thing. And sometimes I would like stand on a chair to be able to see the outfit. Um, but because I hadn't seen myself in a while, when I got a mirror, I was like, whoa, I look so different, which is true because we're our bodies are constantly changing. We're aging. I hadn't seen my body in seven months, like in a full length mirror. And so I said that to a friend and the response was immediate, like, oh, but you're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, this is not an evaluating thing. It's just stating it just that my does. body is different mm -hmm. than it looked last August because that's what bodies do. It is neither good nor bad that my body is different. But our natural response is that to, to make the other person feel better. You want to like, you're, but we're still by raising their beauty currency. Exactly. And it's like, I don't actually want that. That doesn't really feel like a compliment. It feels like we're just perpetuating the same cycle where, um, you're, you're trying to convince me that you see me as beautiful. Um, which means you're still evaluating my appearance. And I'm just saying my body looks very different and I haven't seen it in seven months and whoa, okay. Yeah. There's this, this quote I love that says, and I'll find it and cite it in the show notes, but, um, like, my beauty is not the rent I pay to exist in this world. Ooh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? And, and that's, it's so hard. I mean, I, it's so hard having, and then, and then defining beauty too, because I don't want beauty to not exist because I think beauty exists right. in a different construct on like a different plane right. and to, to have beautiful people in your life and to want to express that. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky subject, a tr tricky place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm just thinking now about, um, how interesting it is that you have lived in two completely different cultures mm -hmm. and you moved when you were 17, right? Mm -hmm. You said, um, can you talk a little bit about kind of your experience as a woman and your experience with your body in Nigeria and also, you know, kind of versus the United States? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, some of the like superficial stark differences are, um, and maybe it's changed now, you know, I've been gone for a long time, but as a kid, uh, the curvier you are, the more attractive 
here, the skinnier you are, the more attractive. Um, so I was a super skinny kid. So in my, my context as a kid, I wasn't attractive because I, yeah, was not the ideal. And then moving here. So actually moving here in college and I would say stuff like that to people. Maybe that's why I stopped talking about it as much because it was like, like that, that doesn't count because here, you know, it's like here I fit, I, I was, I had that currency, right? Um, and so it's like, you can't have body issues. Like you're, look at you, you're so tiny. Um, so that's one of the stark differences. Um, I would also say another difference is that there is more of a, like in Nigerian culture, you are, sometimes you're greeted with an evaluation of the way you look and it's wow. just the way, it's just the way it is. So it's like, you know, say I haven't seen you in a few months and I'd say, oh, Sarah, good to see you. You've put on weight mm -hmm. or you've lost weight mm -hmm. because the, the gaining of weight symbolized that you were, um, wealthier, your family was more comfortable, you were not struggling. So wow. the bigger you were, the more um, affluent or privileged or comfortable you were assumed to be. Mm. So really that was the conversation. It wasn't actually around um, you look beautiful or you look less beautiful. It was more so like you look like you're doing well. Mm. So I was used to, or you look like you're struggling because I would, I was saying this earlier, but people would be like, is your family feeding you? Are you malnutrition? Do you have AIDS? Because wow. uh, I was so skinny. I ate a ton. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think then moving here where it's like, you're not supposed to make any comments about anybody's body was very strange for me. Um, not necessarily in a bad way, because I also didn't love the you know I still have family members who will message every once in a while on social media and be like you've gained weight I'm like yeah no shit you haven't seen me in 13 years like what do you think I've been doing this whole time <laughs> um but I it's a it's a very different uh response or approach to like here it's like you don't talk about it at all and you never you never see anything about another person's body because it's always bad and it's always evaluative um but I don't know. I think other than that, a lot of things are, feel very common, at least in my experience of there, there are ways in both cultures where I felt like uh, there was the ideal and I didn't match, mm -hmm. um, even if it was flipped. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I remember like being in college and the one time in my life I've been dedicated to a workout routine, um, <laughs> I developed a six pack. Probably never happen again. <laughs> um, and I remember getting into the hot tub with some friends. I was wearing a bikini and there were a bunch of guys in there too, who were my friends and they were all like, so freaked out that I had a six pack and they did it. And it was funny and we laughed about it. But I remember taking that back with me and like, oh, okay. So it's also not okay to be too fit. Uh -huh. Like it's not okay to look too, I can't be more fit than the guys I'm around. Yeah. Right. So there's always this. Threatening yeah, I can't be threatening because mm -hmm. I have a six pack and you don't and I'm the girl and you should be stronger. So, yeah, just mm -hmm. all of those. But, I, yeah, I think that there's a lot of commonality across the board, even if it's flipped. It's still the same messaging of you should fit a certain mold as a woman. And when you don't, you're evaluated harshly mm -hmm. um, based on that. 
So in line with kind of this journey to self-acceptance, what what has that looked like for you in regard to being in a black body? That's been um, definitely a huge part of the process of learning to accept and love my body, especially after moving here, where in addition to just standards for beauty as a woman, um, there are different uh, standards and expectations of a black woman's body. Um, I remember in college feeling like I had I had gone from this one experience I was having in Lagos to um, almost being like fetishized to some point. You know, like I was now the exotic um, person because CSU was like I don't know two percent uh, black people. Um, so being the other in that sort of way and having like walking into a space and immediately standing out just because I was the only one um, that looked like me was a different, different experience with my body than I'd had in a country where everyone was just varying shades, but we were all black. Um, And so that, that, that definitely introduced a different level of discomfort. There was definitely, especially as a person who, as a teenager, which is the common, um, it's the goal for that, that season of life, but I wanted to fit in. I didn't want to feel like I stood out everywhere and with everything, but I did. I was in very white Fort Collins, Colorado, going to a school of 20,000 people with like very few people of color. Uh, my friend group was comprised of, it actually was slightly diverse, but I still was the only person um, with skin that looked like mine. Um, and so I think that taught me, like, I internalized this, this idea, which is really funny as people are always like, you know, uh, we've been, we've kind of been talking about the Enneagram. So as a four, which fours are stereotypically, they want to be seen as unique and different. I got so tired of being unique because I, I didn't have a choice. Uh, it was wherever I went, I stood out. Um, and then it was like, fielding comments about my body and my skin and my hair constantly, um, where I felt again, like a commodity, but in a different way. Uh, I felt like I was people, people's, <laughs> people's relationship with my body, white people's relationship with my body was like, a like I, they were at a museum and I was on display. Um, and so there was a lot of wanting to disappear too. There was like the wanting to disappear from not feeling beautiful, but then also just wanting to disappear because I was just so tired of, of that kind of relationship built with my body. And then of course there was like the, the beautiful piece as far as, uh, the very messy dynamics when it comes to interracial relationships in the U S right. And so being at a school, for example, with like mostly white people, um, I remember for example, someone who used to be a friend wasn't uh, very quickly after some of these interactions, but it was like Thanksgiving break or something like that, where I wasn't going to fly anywhere. I was just going to stay in town. And he thought it was funny. He was like, you could come home with me for Thanksgiving. Um, we could tell my parents that we're dating. Cause that would be so funny. Mm-hmm. I was like, why would that be funny? Let's talk about it. It's like, well, cause well, it'd be really funny, but why though? Well, cause I wouldn't bring mm-hmm. home a black girlfriend. 
Um, so just things like that, where it was like, a, it, it felt like it compounded the all, you know, the teenage dilemma I was already having of like, oh, I'm not beautiful and I'm not attractive. And then it was like, oh, in this country, also, I'm not beautiful or attractive because I am black, which is a different layer to this entire <laughs> process. Um, and so I think part of the, the, the journey for me, it was this part took even longer, I would say, than just the acceptance of um, my smile or my eyes or whatever, um, because it's, I mean, this is still uh, the, the white supremacy as it re- relates to these kinds of things is still prevalent and will be, unfortunately, probably for a while. And so it was this constant battling of whose voice am I listening to as far as what is beautiful about me, what is attractive about me. If I'm in these spaces where I'm the only one, then my standard, I remember saying a lot when I was in college and maybe early grad school that, um, and, and I was saying this because some of it had been said to me, but I was never anybody of the people around me. I wasn't anybody's dream. I was like the the surprising exception because my dream is like, you know, a cute, white, blonde-haired, sweet girl. Um, not you. You would be a surprise, right? And I remember feeling like, that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. I hate that. But also internalizing that is like, again, introduction, that that's somehow true of me. Um, so really being careful about whose voices, the voices I was listening to regarding myself as a black woman and not just as a woman, because as has been talked about a lot, not today, but you know, in general, um, just because we're all women doesn't mean that our, our, uh, experiences of this are the same. And a lot of some of the negativity I got was also from white women. So um, really curating kind of my, the circle of voices around me. Um, and I had to teach myself to see my body, my melanin as beautiful. Um, because I live in a place where that's not, it's either, it's like fetishized mm-hmm. or it's criminalized, mm-hmm. but there's no like healthy middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my experience for a long time. And so I had to teach myself what it looked like to love my skin, Um, to see it as beautiful, not, again, not for the purpose of, not for anybody else's benefit, Um, to see it as beautiful even in the face of messages saying that it wasn't, um, both explicit and implicit. And yeah, that, that was quite the process. Like I, I was saying earlier that I removed, like cut out like magazines and those sort of things. And instead I filled my, you know, um, my, my mind with images and words from beautiful women of color, Mm -hmm. um, where I think of them as, you know, I have, um, I, for example, I have a long growing obsession with Tracy Ellis Ross and um (laughs) mostly just because I love how Mm -hmm. how her she is like there's there's Mm -hmm. this beautiful fierce 
unapologeticness to who she is. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Um, but I love looking at like when she posts photos from when she was in her twenties and modeling versus like her body now. And I just think, God, yes, I hope that that is like the trajectory of my body that I just, because she, she looks so different, so different. And yet in each of those seasons is so like grounded in who she is. Mm -hmm. And so like watching that, um, in people, um, that I look up to and admire and kind of just tuning out all the other, yeah, you're supposed to look this way. Um, the colorism that exists, um, where again, the lighter skinned you are, the better, um, you know, like both growing up in Nigeria and here, there's the, there, you're told like, um, don't stay out too long in the sun if you're already this dark because you'll get even darker yeah. because even darker is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and just like allowing myself to enjoy the freaking sun. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have, I don't have more or less worth based on the particular shade of my melanin, no matter what white culture tells me, no matter what Nigerian culture tells me, yeah. um, part of my cake is mm -hmm. that I love my skin. Mm -hmm. Um, but that has taken a long time. Uh, cause I still live in Colorado. You do live in Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's still, it, it, I mean, it's still part of my everyday experience yeah. to walk into a space, mm -hmm. um, and immediately have a reaction to me based on, even if it's like a quote unquote positive reaction. Yeah. Um, like we were saying earlier, it's still that evaluative mm -hmm. dance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, just for our listeners, we, Sarah and I have been talking about privilege and kind of trying to break that down a little bit. Um, and that is, like, this is what we're talking about. Sarah and I don't, that's not a layer that we have. We don't have to face that. That's not something we're thinking about. Um, and and so when, when I say privilege, I mean Sarah and I's life is not, that's not a layer I have to, like, muck my way through mm -hmm. in order for acceptance. So, like, you have this additional layer that's way more complicated than what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. um, but just to add to that kind of, that conversation we were having, Sarah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for talking about that, Chi Chi. It's really important. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. So, um, can you talk a little bit about that transition, um, from Nigeria to the U.S., what was that period of your life like, and how did that play into you kind of starting to step into accepting yourself? Um, well, I would say in retrospect, it was tough, but at the time, I wouldn't have said that. Uh, my mom is a single mother, and her priority in life was to raise a strong woman who was resilient, and so... She did her job well. Mission um, accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. And also there are lots of parts of that that weren't healthy in that yeah. there was uh, a denial of like the softer, more vulnerable things. So now I can tell you that that season was tough. But at the time I was like, no, it's fine. Like, Because um, I didn't. I took a year off between high school and college. Uh, my mom was here with me for, for that period of time. And then I, I moved to college. But I remember like even the process of moving to college, I got to, I went to CSU for Collins and, uh, I got to the dorms and I checked myself in and I was like, okay, I'm here. And then I noticed that everybody else showed up with family and I was like, oh, cool. I didn't even, you know, to me it was just like, all right. And I had, it was, it was at that point that I, I allowed myself 
to be like, oh, right. I would have actually really liked to not have done this alone. Mm -hmm. But I just had to. So that's what I did. Um, But in, I don't know. Can I pause you really quickly? Or were you on a thought process? No. no. Because I think that idea of your mom wanting to raise a strong woman Mm -hmm. is really interesting. And I'm wondering what that meant to her. What, like, what did being a strong woman mean through your mom's eyes? What messages did you get about that? Well, my mom has been single since I was two. She has raised me, my brother. She has supported so many of our family members, so many people who are not related to me by blood who refer to my mom as their mom. Um, so I think for her, the messages that she, at least that I took from her definition of strength and what she was hoping for me was that I would not be dependent on a man for my happiness or success. Culturally, that was the norm in Nigeria where it's like, you really have no worth unless you are tethered to a man. Mm. So it's like you are uh, essentially the property of your parents until you're married. And then you're the property of your husband. And maybe property is like too harsh, but it did feel like that sometimes. And so as a single woman who was going against the grain and got a lot of crap for that herself. Um, it was important to her to raise somebody who wasn't dependent on say a man with a good job in order for me to be provided for, um, to be able to, um, take care of myself, have my own dreams, pursue them. She was a very, um, non-traditional Nigerian mom. Um, So in a lot of ways she was, but in a lot of ways she really, I'm grateful to her for the ways that she um, encouraged my strength. Now, in other ways, my mom is a, to use the Enneagram, she's a one, I'm a four. So there was a lot of like criticism. Describe really quickly what a one is. A one is uh, the perfectionist on the Enneagram. And so um, ones, their uh, habit of attention is towards looking for errors and things that are wrong mistakes in order to be corrected um they they do that internally they do that externally it was really helpful for me to learn about ones through the enneagram because it really deepened my compassion for my mom because i was like all of the really high standards you had for me you had probably even higher ones for yourself um and some of them weren't really humanly possible so um she's she's learned over the course of her journey to offer herself grace, which has also helped her offer me grace. But um, there was a lot of criticism as a kid uh, that I internalized of, you know, what I heard more often was the things that I wasn't doing as well as I could be, or you came home with B's. Mm. Did the kid who got A's have two heads? Why did you get an A? So, um, but there was just like this, this demand for excellence, um, And there was never any, it was like, you're doing this for you. Um, And then you can take that and bring that into a partnership someday. But um, I think her version of strength is like, you can stand on your own. You can provide for yourself. You can depend on yourself. Um, And then from that place, you can like offer, you know, things or gifts to other people or allow people into your life, but not in a dependent way. Wow. Yeah. Do you have a question? I do have a question. You have a question? <laughs> no, I do, but you go. You go first. My question's a little bit tangenting. Well, not tangenting, bringing us back, maybe. Okay. Mine, okay, you go, you go. <laughs> I'm just wondering, 
so looking back at that time, um, so I don't want to leave the story of your mom all the time, but so like you, you've always had this like strength and you've just done, right? So I'm imagining like, even when you're feeling different, that's okay. Even when you're feeling different, um, physically and body, uh, you just, you still push forward. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about like how that strength was a gift and how that strength maybe is something that didn't like how it served you and how it didn't serve you. That's a great question. It didn't serve me in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. It did serve me in many ways. Like I was just saying with, um, I do consider myself to be very resilient, um, very independent, um, with a strong belief in like my own efficacy. Um, and at the same time, because that was my model for strength. Cause my mom also, I think I, my childhood, I saw her cry one time, you know, like it was just like those softer emotions were not, and I was more prone to tears as a kid. And it was a lot of, the messaging was a lot of, um, well, your tears are not going to help you solve that problem. So sit down and figure out what the problem is, what your plan is, how you want to execute that. But crying doesn't, doesn't change anything, doesn't solve anything. It's a waste of time. So it's funny now because uh, my friends are therapists because I'm a therapist (laughs) and also because my friends make fun of me now for being so quick to tears. Like I will watch a commercial and cry. I was telling you earlier, I've been watching America's Got Talent and weeping like (laughs) sobs. Um, And I, that's one of the things I love about myself now. But part of that definition of quote unquote, quote unquote strength was to not let any of that show. So as far as like my experience with like, body image, appearance, insecurity, all of that was internal because being strong meant that nobody else saw that. Um, And so I was more, I projected a tough, don't care about any of this. Don't care if you like me. I don't care. Um, Meanwhile, on the inside, I was like, but why not? Um, So it didn't serve me in that way because it took me a long time to even be vulnerable with my own self about how these things had affected me and to be able to be vulnerable with other people and learn in that vulnerability that all of these other things I had been carrying with me my whole life as truths about who I was weren't actually true, but I needed to actually pause and allow myself to be vulnerable, um, to be able to confront that. What was the moment for you or the moments or the time period where you started to learn how to become vulnerable with yourself and what did that look like? I'm still learning. Um, I don't know if I can remember um, a defining, like the first, Uh you know, Um, but it did, it just felt like a series of, I feel really grateful for probably like at the top of the list of things I'm grateful for um, is my friends, like the, the really good ones that have stuck around for a long time. Because uh, I think that even in the, with this topic of self-acceptance, for example, I think a lot of times it can be talked about like this is just an internal process. And I don't know how anyone learns to love themselves without having that reflected back towards them. So I'm really thankful for people who like held up a mirror. <laughs> I'm really thankful for the people who held up a mirror to me over and over and over again and said, look, you are beautiful. Like, stop believing you lie. I'm tearing up. Um, so I feel really grateful for them. And I think it was probably the process of being vulnerable was learning to trust them. Mm. 
like learning to trust. And I have, <laughs> I'm a four, but I lean very much into my five wing and I love research. So it was like my internal, um, my internal research project to collect, because I had all these stories, right, from my childhood and from other things that um, I use, I, I thought of as true of me, mm. um, but in the negative. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start keeping track of all the times that people say positive. Now, maybe to your um, earlier question about like Nigeria and here, one of my first uh, observations, which I still believe to this day, is that people here are socialized to be nice and not honest. And I grew up in a culture where people are socialized to be far more honest than nice. <laughs> like it's actually more rude to be nice mm. and, uh, than, than to be honest. And so it took me a lot. I still have a hard time believing Americans in general, period, because I'm like, I just feel like you're socialized to say the thing that's, um, that you think the other person wants to hear or that's socially acceptable, but not necessarily the truth. Mm. Um, and so I would always counter, you know, every time someone's like, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. I'll be like, mm-hmm, thanks. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, that's, that's what you say to, to everyone. Um, I've heard you say that to somebody and when, the, and when they left, I've heard the other things you said. So I know you're not being honest, but I found my people who were. Mm-hmm. And so I made it like my internal research project to pay attention and to like start tallying. <laughs> and I don't know whether this was, it was helpful for me, but I don't know that I would I don't know. Well, really quick. Sorry. Echo and I are probably going the same place. Can you talk a little bit about the five? You say you have a really strong five wing, so that might be helpful for people that don't understand what that means. Oh, in yeah, terms I'm of so the sorry. Enneagram. Yes. Um, whatever number you identify with on the Enneagram, you have wings, which are the two numbers next to you on the circle. Um, they can be balanced, whichever time I've taken the test, it says it's balanced, but you can lean more to one or the other. So as a four, my two wings are three and five, and I lean more towards the five, uh, which is called the observer. Um, fives love to gather knowledge. They're super inquisitive. They Knowledge helps them feel safe, um, but they're kind of like observers of the world and of other people, almost to their own detriment. They observe more than they participate. Um, but I very, I'm very comfortable in the observer space. Um, and so I, that's what I mean by like, I, I kind of like to gather, I still do gather, mm-hmm. I'm constantly watching and observing and like curating data about uh-huh. people. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I would do that with the, with the positives. And um, I remember I would have these conversations with myself of like, okay, so I don't know, 20 people have said this about you and they don't all know each other. They didn't all get in, like get together in like a, let's have a meeting about Chi Chi and decide what words we're going to use to affirm her. And it would be so creepy because it would be the same words. Like for example, um, and they were not necessarily about my appearance, Yeah. but um, for example, a very common phrase that has been used by multiple different people in different settings who don't know each other for years um, solicited and unsolicited is you have such a quiet power about you. And I'm like, Okay, well, you all clearly didn't get together to have a conversation (laughs) about finding this phrase and using it, so it must be true. Um, And as a foreign interviewer, my defense mechanism is uh, called um, introjection, which essentially is taking what other people say about me, positive or negative, and just 
assuming that that is true of my core identity without filtering, without processing what's true, what's not, what's mine, what's yours. Mm-hmm. Um, if you say, I'm a horrible person, I must be. I must now figure out how to not be a horrible person because you said it. As opposed to, wait, that might not be true. (laughs) That might be your own stuff going on. Or maybe I did one horrible thing, but that is not reflective of my identity as a whole. And so I think that's one of the gifts also that the Enneagram has given me too, is like recognizing those patterns and how quickly I kind of walked around or how, um, how often, for how long I walked around in the world with a feedback sheet saying, tell me what you think about me. Tell me all the things that are wrong about me so I can work really hard to change them. Mm. Um, as opposed to like, again, allowing what is, accepting what is, allowing myself to be human, not the ideal of what I think other people need or want me to be. So I um, I don't even know what the question was, but now I'm just going to go back to the, <laughs> like the, the, the journey process of, of getting through unless you're going to ask something. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, I think that's really powerful. It's something that I work with clients on is like this being evaluated, like a compliment or a criticism, like when you're so grounded in who you are, they don't mean much, Mm -hmm. right? So if I tell you, your smile is beautiful, if you're like, well, I know that, that that's nice to hear, but that doesn't like add to me knowing it more deeply because I already know it. Yes. And if I say your smile is not beautiful, then you're like, that's not true. Right. 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 So like this idea of taking feedback about, especially appearance or work, like our work ethic or Mm -hmm. whatever we're being evaluated on and saying, I'll take that into consideration, but it doesn't actually do anything for me, including the positive. Yes. I think of it, the language that has helped me and that sometimes I use with my clients is thinking of a cake. So it's like this work I've been doing for myself has been making my own cake. So when you tell me your smile is beautiful, it's just icing. It's not Mm -hmm. the whole cake. Mm -hmm. And if you don't say it, that's fine because I still have the whole cake. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, rather than expecting my, I think for most of my life, I was using other people's affirmation or... To try to make the cake. Yeah, to try and build the cake. And it's like, no, that's... It's my cake. Mm. I always have the cake, whether you see it or not, whether you give me any icing to put on it or not. I always have the cake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't lose that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. And, And then I want you to go back to... So, yeah, how... Yeah, tell me about integrating into yourself and being in the place you are? How did you get from there to here? I don't even, I think that there must have been a point where I um, really recognized it and like made a conscious decision. But the earliest I can remember was being in college, I think my uh, sophomore, junior year, and just being tired of the relationship I'd had with my body for 20 years at that point. Um, And the constant evaluating that I was doing um, and criticizing and like having a long list of things I didn't like. And so I was like, what, what are some practical things I can do? So I cut out, I remember I got rid of any sort of like magazine Mm. saying, amen, got rid of all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, I stopped. I looked in the mirror when I was getting ready for the day. And then at the end of the day, when I was like getting ready for bed and I didn't look in mirrors in the in-between, which is a practice I've kept to this day. Now, now it's just like, it, I don't think about it. I just don't spend a lot of time looking in the mirror. And so now I have a lot of days where I um, 
come home and I'm like, oh, you look so great today. I forgot. <laughs> like, cause I'm not, cause before it was this constant, like I wanted to make sure that I was, I still looked okay. Um, and so I think that those practices kind of helped me forget myself more in a good way. Like mm-hmm. forget the obsession with appearance more. Mm-hmm. Um, I also actively removed myself from conversations about body shaming. Um, I know in this culture, it's like, it's like the, almost like the rite of passage into like a group of girlfriends is that we can all find commonality around the things we don't like about our bodies. And I was, I remember being like, I'm done. No, I'm not going to sit in a group of people and talk about things I don't like. Listen to you talk about things you don't like. I'm out. Um, and now, you know, like more recently, more recent years, I will just call it out blatantly. I'm like, no, nope. try again. What do you love about your body? We're not doing the thing where we sit here and talk about that. Um, but that. that was, that was helpful for me. I also made a practice, which I now recommend for my clients of, uh, standing in front of my mirror, completely naked and just looking at my body, um, which then grew into like finding something to appreciate and then like, and then love and then yes. <laughs> acceptance and to love. Yeah. yeah. And to love. Yeah. And it worked. And I, it worked so much that I am like people who've lived with me know that I much rather be naked than clothed. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas my mom, for example, when I was growing up would be like, listen, kid, I birthed you. I cleaned you up. And like, why, why is it so uncomfortable for you to be naked? And now people are like, please put on clothes. Um, <laughs> Cause I really do feel so comfortable. And so like, I, I, my, um, I forgot I used to say this a lot. And my friend reminded me the other day of like, you know, you said for years that you felt more beautiful naked than with clothes on. And I'm like, I do feel that way though. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not how I felt as a kid, but it was this process of like, okay, but this is what I have. This is what I will always have. This is my home forever while I exist on this earth. Will I spend the rest of my time criticizing and critiquing mm-hmm. or will I learn to grow the home that has taken care of me this whole time. Mm. And so building a relationship with my body also, that wasn't, I think I was like very disconnected from it anyways in general, but building a relationship that helped me um, see it for more than a commodity, that I don't exist just for someone else's visual satisfaction or my own. There are so many other things my body does. It is strong, it's capable, it holds all of my experiences, both good and bad. It is wise. Um, I can listen to it. So like building that kind of relationship was also helpful for me to have a fuller, more rounded relationship with my body than just how it looks or how other people think it should look. And I, one of the things, uh, when I was leaving Nigeria, or maybe it was after my gap year leaving for college, my mom, uh, as most Nigerian mothers would say, was like, this is all about school. It's all about academics. You don't have time for boyfriends. And also, if anyone asks you to model, tell them no. And I was so dumbfounded because I was like, who in the world would ask me to model? <laughs> like, my whole life up until this point, I had been the ugly one in my group of friends. Like, if someone asked them to model, sure. But me, I just laughed it off. And probably for the last 10 years, I've been repeatedly asked to model. Mm-hmm. I, like, joke that I'm a quarter-time model because <laughs> I, I'll be walking down the street multiple times. Like, I was, I was walking down the street on a first date one time and someone like, like sprinted and chased us down to ask me if I would model on a fashion show. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes. 
And so it's like, those are the things too I keep tally of now. And I want to like, there are times when I'm like, oh, I want to go back and tell Tiny Chi Chi. They were wrong. Mm-hmm. They were wrong about you. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why when you said, your smile is so beautiful. I'm like, I know. It is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like I had all this time of, you know, taking in those comments as true of me and giving them more power. Because um, I'm like, there are probably people who exist today who think my smile isn't pretty. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine. Yeah. yeah, You have the right to your own opinion. I have my cake. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking um, how powerful it is that you said you were just tired. Like mm. you were just like tired of like being exhausted from not liking yourself was a part of like the beginning of self-acceptance. And that just feels really powerful and really probably relatable to so many people who are just exhausted from spending so much time looking in the mirror and like moving their eyes yeah. and picking themselves apart mm-hmm. and just... So I'm curious how, like, what is, what's different for you now? Like, as you've moved into acceptance, what, what does that give you? What is it for? So much joy, Mm. so much peace, so much more brain space to think about other things and put my energy elsewhere. Um, It is a good filter for the kind of people I want in my life. Mm. Um, So the people I have around me, are not people who evaluate me based on my physical appearance. And so it's a good filter for me when I meet people who like, that's what they care about. I'm like, all right, there goes the boundary that I'm setting. Um, Because I feel so comfortable. Um, And I think there was also something magical about like going through the portal from twenties to thirties where I was like, I feel like I just sank a little deeper into my my sea of self-acceptance of mm. this is it this is this is my body this is my life this is like all the stuff that it's given me um I don't have time to waste mm-hmm. like hoping that somebody else likes it if you don't like a part of my body like if a partner doesn't like a part of my body sucks to be you man because this is what it is and also it will keep changing so if you're with me for how I look newsflash, I'm going to look very different in 10 years and then in 10 years from that and then 10 years from that. So, um, I just, I don't know. I think, I think also it's been a, a concurrent process with falling in love with the other parts of myself. I think there is a lot of, which is common for teenage girls, but during that time of life, you're so focused on how you look and what that means as far as your place in groups and in society. And then I think in becoming more fully human and exploring all the other parts of myself and loving all the other parts of myself. It's like, Oh yeah, this is like 10% of who I am. Mm -hmm. This is not the whole thing. And I have people who see all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't know. It's just a different relationship now, um, than before. And it feels more peaceful and more, um, I'm friends with my body. Mm. it's not something it's not my enemy and it's not a project it's not a task to be managed or worked on I'm friends with it yeah so I guess it's been so inspiring listening to your whole story and your whole journey in in regard to this piece of self-acceptance and I'm just wondering kind of in hearing listening to your own self talk about it um, do you feel like you have a message for people based on your own experience that are working to accept themselves? 
Hmm. I don't know. Spend more time building your own cake. Mm. Spend more time building your own cake. Snaps. <laughs> let's, let's go have cake after this. Yes. yes. <laughs> I don't I know. That. I feel like that's. Yeah. Um, and by building your own cake too, like like the full, not just like. When I, when I say that, I'm not just referring to my relationship with my body, but my cake being like my, my whole relationship with myself um, so that I'm not looking towards, you're not looking towards the external to provide something that actually already exists. I think part of this process too for me was realizing that it's a self-discovery. It's like a returning to what, what, what was already true, what has been true of me my whole life. Yes. I think that's why it yes. feels so comfortable and joyful is not that... It doesn't feel to me like I got something from the outside. Like I did all this work and then something from the outside then came to me and mm-hmm. said, okay, now you are good. It, it was, existed all along. It existed all along. That 13-year-old version of myself, that 7-year-old version, that 15-year-old version, whatever, like this has always been true of me. I just took this long to see it. It wasn't because somebody else gave it to me or something else. I worked really hard for it externally and then I achieved it. And so building that cake of being able to do the process of rediscovering, like recognizing how much of your relationship with your body and yourself is determined by external forces, um, external validation, and doing the work of becoming friends with yourself. Because the better friends you are with yourself, the harder it is to be um, so critical and mean and demeaning of your body beautiful that's so beautiful thank you thank you so much thank you so much for sharing this part of your story with us thank you i've never shared this before so so i (laughs) feel so honored yeah 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 um so just one more time for our listeners can you let them know where to find you and um just because i'm sure as people are probably feeling the same way that I know I'm feeling right now um, just wanting to know more about you and knowing where they can find you after hearing such a beautiful and honest, vulnerable story. Um, on Instagram at thinspaceco and my website is thinspaceco.com as well. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Titi. Yes. And signing off. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.